the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. I started to tear up a little bit as they were playing. This week, I was, I was driving to Hamilton just to run an errand. And um, there was a song that was playing in my radio. Well, I was actually through my phone. Um, it's a song called, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Have you ever heard that song before? And uh, I don't know if you, some of you know this, but when I drive, there are times where I like to sing. I like to sing along with the song, but... You know, if I get a little embarrassed, I stay quiet. But since I was alone, in my car, I started singing that song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And I remember as I was driving, I started to tear up. And I was like, wait a minute, why am I I tearing up right now? I'm here just to run an errand, right? But as I'm singing this song, I just start to cry. And it starts to become so overwhelming that I have to pull over in the front of Lowe's department store. And I'm in the middle of the parking lot and I'm weeping to myself. (laughs) And I'm like, what is going on right now? But there was this overwhelming conviction that Jesus loved me. And at the end of the song, I don't know if if this was just specifically for me, but at the end of the song, there were these words. It was a prayer of commitment to Jesus. And it was it, basically the prayer went, I, I don't remember the exact words, but if I were to summarize it is, if you want to commit your life to Jesus, just ask him to come in and he will deal with your sins. And after I prayed that simple prayer, as I read through it, I felt another overwhelming experience. I felt an overwhelming experience of peace. Have you ever felt that before? Has Jesus impacted your life like that? When you think about the cross, when you think about the closing scenes of Christ's life, when you think about the gift that the Father had given to this world in His Son, Jesus Christ, does that bring conviction to your heart? Does it stir a love in your heart for Him? My hope and prayer uh, is that as a result of this message that you may contemplate the cross. And it is my prayer that the cross will make a difference in your life this morning if it hasn't already. But before we begin, let us go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer as we begin this morning's message. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, we thank you so much for this blessed Sabbath morning. We thank you so much for the sun that has appeared. And Father, when I look at the sun, it reminds me of the sun, of your son, Jesus Christ. And oh, how it warms my heart to think about him, Father. Oh, how it warms my heart to think about his willingness to give his life on my behalf and on behalf of my friends here this morning. Father, this morning I pray that as we enter into this moment of spending time in your word, it is my sincere prayer, Father, that you would fill this place with your presence. It is my sincere prayer, dear God, that you would not only fill this room, but that you would fill our hearts with the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, that as we go through the pages of Scripture, as we read your precious and holy word, 
It is my sincere prayer, dear God, that you would bring conviction to our hearts. And it is my sincere prayer that you would help us to value the cross of Calvary and what Jesus had done for us. Father, may we value Jesus as our Savior, as our friend, and our King. And dear God, I pray that as we leave from this place, that the words that are shared from the Scriptures may be in our minds and our hearts, even throughout the rest of the Sabbath, even throughout the rest of our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would always keep you at the forefront of our minds. Please bless us this morning, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. There are times I like to go to uh, this used bookstore. Um, Maybe some of you guys have heard of it. It's the McKay's Bookstore. Have you ever been there before? You go to McKay's Bookstore, for a pastor like myself, it's it's amazing. Because you go into a... You go into this bookstore, and they have this huge Adventist section, right? And I love to go there just to pick and choose different books and to build my library. And recently, I picked up this book. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Have you guys ever heard of this book? Uh, I have not read through the entire book yet, but uh, I have started it this week. And it has been a tremendous blessing. And I'm on the first chapter. I haven't really got too far, but the first chapter is about early Christians. And... As it's obvious in the title, this book is about martyrs. It's about people who have sacrificed their life for the cause of the gospel. And there's this particular individual, his name is Polycarp, and he was an early Christian, and he gave his life for the truth. It was very interesting, as I was reading through his story, he had this dream, this vision, three days before he actually gave his life. And in this vision, he found himself, or he saw himself, sleeping on a pillow. And as he was sleeping on this pillow, all of a sudden, the pillow went in flames as he was sleeping upon it. He woke up, and he realized that God was trying to speak to him. He recognized that that vision, what it meant, was that soon and very soon, he was going to be burned at the stake. Polycarp always kept this in his mind. And so for those three days, as he was thinking about that, sure enough, after the three days, had, had uh, on the third day, I believe, or second day, I can't remember, but there was a, a group of soldiers that came for his life, came to take him and bring him to a stadium. And so he was on his way to the stadium, and he finally gets to the stadium full of all of these people. And all the people were saying, hey, we need to take, take his life, you know, sacrifice his life. He's doing more harm than any good. And so they were saying that he should be given up to beasts. But Polycarp knew that even though they were screaming that his life should be given to a beast like a lion, he knew in his mind that God had already told him that he was going to be burning, uh, he was to be burnt on a stake. And so he kept that in mind. And sure enough, what ended up happening is the crowd, instead of offering him to a beast, they, they started to shout that he be burned at the stake. And so... There were some soldiers and, and a group of people that came in and they, you know, they, they, they prepared the stake. They prepared all that's, that, that is necessary in order for his body to be burnt. And if I can just read the experience that he had gone through in, in the middle of that stadium, I hope that I, I, I believe that you would be blessed as much as I was when I was reading through it. This is found in page 24 of this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. But it goes on like this. When they would have fastened him to the stake, he said, 
leave me as I am. For he who giveth me strength to, to sustain the fire will enable me also without your securing me with nails to remain without flinching in the pile. Upon which they bound him without nailing him. So he said thus, O Father, I bless thee that thou hast counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of martyrs. Listen to this. So powerful. It says, as soon as he had uttered the word, amen, the officers lighted the fire. The flame forming the appearance of an ark as the sail of a vessel filled with wind, surrounded as with a wall the body of the martyr, which was in the midst, not burning flesh, not as burning flesh, but as gold and silver refining in the furnace. We received also in our nostrils, notice this, such a fragrance as proceeds from frankincense or some other precious perfume. At length, the wicked people, observing that his body could not be consumed with fire, ordered that the confector to approach and to plunge his sword into the body. Upon this, such a quantity of blood gushed out that the fire was extinguished. Isn't that incredible? Here's this man who gave himself for the sake of the truth, gave himself in the name of Christ. And we find here this magnificent scene. We see that the presence of God was there. That even though his life perished, we saw that God had favor upon this man. Amen? And you know, as I'm reading through these these stories of the book uh, of these martyrs and thinking about how they gave up their life for Christ... It's almost like reading a rebuke. <laughs> because I think about my life and I think about how dedicated and how consecrated I am to Him. And you know, to be honest with you, oftentimes I think about myself and I see that I fall short. And you know, when we think about these martyrs, we think that this is the ultimate sacrifice. To give your life for God. To give your life for Jesus' sake. You know, it was interesting. Um, I was at GYC. How many of you guys went to GYC this year? Okay. Quite a few of you. It was such a blessing. Had a powerful experience there. There was one moment. I was. I believe this was Sabbath afternoon, and uh, there was a plenary session. And in this plenary session, there was a man who was sharing his experiences in the Middle East. He was a part of a ministry in the Middle East, and uh, basically, this ministry. What they do is they invite people from the states to come out to be a student or to be a professional out there in the Middle East in the 10:40 window, and to basically live like missionaries to be like the Walden Seas of old. And so he was, he was sharing all these powerful experiences of, of, of different individuals who have gone overseas and have, have, have been there in the Middle East and were serving God faithfully. And, you know, it was, it was so powerful just listening to these testimonies. And I, and I can sense in the room that people were being convicted and being convinced that they themselves need to, need to make that commitment as well. And so as he was sharing this test, these testimonies, as he's talking about the ministry, he eventually got to the end of his segment, and he made an appeal. And the appeal was very simple, but it was very specific. And the appeal was this. Is there anyone in this room today, and I'm paraphrasing, if there, is there anyone in this room today that is willing to give up their lives for Jesus? And he told the audience, he said, I don't want everyone to stand up because I know that realistically not everyone is going to be able to go. But I know that God is speaking to a select group of people who he wants to go overseas to give up their lives for the cause. 
And there was, there was sure enough, people started getting up and moving over to the front, and they were about to pray. But he says, do, do you guys understand what you're doing? Do you understand wh- why you are here? And he says, the reason I'm calling you forward is because I'm going to be sending you to hostile territory. I'm going to be sending you in, into an area where it's not easy to be a Christian. And so if you're coming, recognize that you're coming to dedicate your life to God. Recognize that you are coming with the risk of maybe sacrificing your life. And as I saw these people coming forward, I was getting touched in my heart. And I was so blessed just seeing these people make that full commitment, saying to, the, to, to, to God it, before him that I am willing to give my life for the cause. But you know what was very interesting? I praise God for that group. But you know what was very interesting? As I was, I was, I was closing my eyes and bowing my head, it was as though God wanted to teach me something at that very moment. Because I, I admired that. You know, I always read through the martyrs, and I always read through these stories of people who had given their lives. You read the, the martyrs within the Bible, right? Ste- Stephen, who gave his life. Before he gave his, li- uh, gave his life, he looked into heaven. He saw Jesus in heaven. He gave his life. He was stoned to death. I think about these stories, and I think how encouraging, how inspiring. And I aspire to be like that. You know, none of us want to burn at a stake. Isn't that true? None of us want to, 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 to suffer in a prison. None of us want to lose our heads. But I know that many of us, if not all of us, want to have that dedication and commitment to the Lord. Isn't that true? We want to have the heart of a martyr. In that regardless of what may happen in our life, we are always going to be committed to God and His truth. And that was, as I was sitting there and I was closing my eyes in prayer, I, I started to recognize that God was giving me an impression. And he was telling me, Kurt, I know you want to be a martyr. Or I know you're willing to give up your life for the cause. But I want you to know something. And and this is just a conversation that I was having with God in my mind. He says, I want you to know something. You do not have to wait till you're in hostile territory to give up your life for me. You don't have to wait till you're brought into the midst of a coliseum where there are lions that are waiting inside a cage before you make a commitment to give your life to me. You don't have to be tied to a stake or nailed to a stake to say, God, I want to give my life for you. You know what God was telling me? He says, you have to have the mentality of a martyr every day. In that when you wake up, you say to me, I'm giving my life to you. We have to have the mentality of a martyr every day. So if there's someone here this morning that aspires to be like a martyr or aspires to to do something great for God, recognize that God wants you to commit to him day to day, not wait for a future experience. I want you to turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, looking at verse 1. Many of of you know this to be the chapter of love. And the previous chapter, chapter 12, Paul talks about spiritual gifts. He talks about all diverse gifts, how every member of the church has a gift, and we are all to use our gift with the same spirit, right? But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, looking at verse 1, I want you to notice this disclaimer, in a sense, that Paul makes here 
about gifts, about being used by God, being instruments for his cause. I want you to notice what it says in verse 1. The Bible reads, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Paul is saying here that even if, if he had the gift of tongues, if he had the ability to speak multiple languages, or if someone had the ability to speak multiple languages, or had the ability of, of speaking eloquence, he says that if, if that person does not have charity, he sounds, like a sound, he sounds like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Have you ever heard a, a cymbal just being clashed on multiple times? Is that a beautiful thing to listen to? It isn't, right? He's basically saying if you have the gift of speech, you have the gift of language, if you have not charity or if you have not love, it means nothing. Verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and have and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Interesting. He goes on further to say, even if you have wisdom, even if you have knowledge, if you have understanding of prophecy, if you do not have charity, it means nothing. Even if you had the capability to move a mountain, if you had not charity, it means nothing. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Verse 3 is where it really hit me. Because remember I told you, it would be nice to have, to have that experience like some of these martyrs. Even though I'm scared of the thoughts of ever burning on a stake or being ravaged by lions, it would be incredible to suffer for Christ's sake. But what Paul says here in verse 3 was just mind-blowing. Because in verse 3, did you catch what he said there? Talk, after talking about goods being fed to the poor, he says, And though I give my body to be what? Though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. What is Paul basically saying? Paul is basically saying that if we are using our spiritual gifts, whatever talents we may have, whether it is being able to speak eloquently or to be able to give a powerful presentation on the, uh, uh, regarding the truth of God's word, or even if we, had, uh, we, we, had to, we seem to be compassionate in, in feeding the poor and doing all these charitable acts, even if we did incredible miracles, if we did not have, if we don't have charity in our hearts, it is meaningless. And Paul is basically saying, you can even give your life to be burned at the stake. But if the love of God is not in your heart, that sacrifice is meaningless. And God told me this. He doesn't care so much about you giving your body as he cares about you giving, you, giving him your heart. Amen? Because that, my friends, is what is most important to God. It is not how you go. It is not how you die. But it is what is the condition of your heart. Do you love God? And my question for you this morning is very simple. Do you love God? Is the love of Jesus in your heart? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I want us to look at verse 4. 
1 Corinthians chapter 13, looking at verse 4. Notice what Paul says here. He then talks about love, talks about charity, continuing on that, that topic, and defines what charity is, or talks about what, chari- what, what are the characteristics of charity. Verse 4 says this, Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity does, does not what? It doesn't envy. Right? Charity vaunteth not itself. What does it mean that it doesn't vaunteth itself? It means that you don't seek for vain glory. Isn't that true? It doesn't vaunteth itself. If you have the love of God in your heart, you're not seeking for your own vain glory. It doesn't vaunteth itself. And it continues on to say here, doesn't vaunt itself, is not puffed up. Pride doesn't, uh, love does not have pride in it as well. Are you guys seeing what I'm saying here? So here we see that, that charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity is not, uh, uh, does, uh, charity vaunted not itself, is not puffed up. Do you guys see here that charity has nothing to do with self-interest and self-love? Do you guys see that? Paul is basically saying that if you have the love of God in your heart, you don't have self-interest and self-love. But you should have love for God, of course. John chapter 12. Let's go to John chapter 12. And that was the issue that Lucifer had at the beginning. Isn't that true? When he started to envy Jesus, instead of having a love for God, he started to have a love for himself. And that's why we talk about Lucifer having an eye problem, right? It was always about him. I, 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 I. There were so many things that he wanted. He didn't even think about what God wants for his life. John chapter 12, and I want us to go ahead and look at what it says in verse 20. John chapter 12, looking at verse 20. And friends, if you get there, if you can just say amen. John chapter 12, looking at verse 20. The Bible says this. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethesda of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. So here are these these individuals, these Greeks, they come to Philip, and they ask that we would see Jesus. In verse 22, the Bible continues on to say, Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And I want you to notice, when Jesus hears the words that there were certain individuals that wanted to, 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 to see Jesus, it's very interesting how Jesus responds. Notice what, what he says here in verse 24. He says, Verily, verily, or I'm sorry, verse 23, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be what? Should be glorified. Quick question, maybe a Bible trivia question. When was Jesus glorified? There are many moments in the book of John where, where Jesus would say, my hour has not come, right? Meaning, my hour has not come to be glorified. When he says that he is going to be glorified, what is he referring to? He's going to be most glorified where? At the, at the cross. Is at that moment where, the son of, uh, where Jesus is glorified, right? He's glorified to the world. And what's very interesting, he says here, verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Look at verse 24. And we see that the connection between him being glorified and his death. Because in verse 24 it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat 
fall into to the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus was speaking about his death. And he recognized that in order for him, in, in order for fruit to be born, he must first die. Do you guys see that? In order for there to be fruit, he must first die. And, and isn't that true? Because of the death of Jesus, much fruit is given. Amen? So many lives will be saved in the kingdom of heaven because of what Jesus had done at the cross of Calvary. And he says those words, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. How many of you are thankful for the cross today? I am so thankful for the cross. It's because of what Jesus has done for us that we can even have life today. It is because of what Jesus has done, we have mercy. It's because of what Jesus has done, we have a future to look forward to. But there is something here that Jesus continues on. He says something very interesting after he says those words that are profound. And I want you to really pay attention. After speaking about, uh, using an illustration pointing, uh, regarding his death, I want you to look at what verse 25 says. The Bible says, He that loveth his what? He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. What, do I, what, what, what did I see there? In verse 24, he refers to his death, saying that if it, it is necessary for something to die in order for fruit to be born. But what's very interesting, in verse 25, he then brings it to people, right? To, the, to others. And he says this, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. In order for our lives to be fruitful, something needs to die. Isn't that true? Because that's the principle from, the, from, from that passage here in verse, in verse uh, 24. That something needs to die in order for fruit to be born. In order for our lives to be fruitful, beloved, something needs to die. And what needs to die? Self. Amen? Self needs to die. Because if we are selfish, if all we care about is our own interests, if all we love is ourselves, then how can we ever be fruitful? How can we ever do God's work Winning souls for the kingdom if all our mind is consumed about ourselves and upon God and others. God is communicating here to us that in order for us to be fruitful in this life, in order for us to save souls in the kingdom, in order for our lives to bear much fruit, self needs to die. How many of you want yourself to die? How many of you want to crucify the old man? Amen? It is only as we, as we allow God to crucify the old man that you and I can have fruitful lives. Ellen White says these words. This is found in Desire of Ages, page 623 to 624. It says this. When this truth, with this truth, Christ connects the lesson of self-sacrifice that all should learn. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. All who would bring forth fruit 
as workers together with Christ, must first fall into the ground and die. The life must be cast into the furrow of the world's need. Self-love, self-interest must perish. The law of self-sacrifice is the law of self-preservation. The husbandman preserves his grain by casting it away. So in human life, to give is to live. The life that will be preserved is the life that is freely given in service to God and man. Those who for Christ's sake sacrifice their life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. So beloved, if we want to be fruitful, if we want to be instruments in the cause of the gospel, if we want to do a special work in saving souls into the kingdom of heaven, we need to recognize that self must be crucified and that Jesus needs to live in our life. Amen? Turn your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. Ellen White says in the, ministry of, in, in the book Ministry of Healing, page 19, paragraph 2, she says something about the life of Christ. If she were to uh, sort of summarize what Christ's life was about, she does a good job here in this sentence. She says this, His life, speaking of Jesus' life, was one of constant, of what? Of constant self-sacrifice. It was one of constant self-sacrifice. And by the way, what makes Jesus' death so significant for us? Is it because he, 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 he was on the cross and he suffered for us? It was, is it because of all the torment he had gone through? What is it exactly about Jesus' death that makes it so profound and so significant? Beloved, the reason why Jesus' death means anything for us today is because of the life that he lived. Do you realize that? The only reason Jesus' death makes an impact for you and I is because of the type of life that he lived. And the type of life that Jesus lived, beloved, is a life of self-sacrifice. It is a life of sinlessness. Amen? Because the fact of the matter is, if Jesus even sinned once, what does that mean for us? We'd all be doomed. So it is because of Jesus' commitment to the Father, because of his steadfast faith in the Father, it is because of his life, the life that he lived, that is why his death means something for us today. And remember, I believe Peter says this, Jesus' life is to be an example. Amen? If we want to live powerful lives, if we want to live a life for the truth, our life should reflect that of Jesus. And it, that, that means that if Jesus lived a life of constant self-sacrifice, that must mean for the Christian, he or she too needs to live a life of constant sacrifice. How can that happen? 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. And if the saints are still awake, if you can say amen. 1 John chapter 4, looking at verse 19. Notice what the Bible says. We love him because what? He first loved us. It is impossible to love God until we recognize his love for us. Amen? 
We love him because he first loved us. What does it mean to love God? Look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. Now, I, I would like to suggest to you to read this entire chapter. It's beautiful. But let's, for the sake of time, let's just look at verse 8. The Bible says, He that loveth not. So if you don't have love in your heart, John says th- these words. He that loveth not. What is that next word? Knoweth not God. For God is love. That's a fundamental principle, isn't that true? I mean, we all know that. In order for you to love someone, you must first what? Know them. Isn't that true? Do you just love, do you love your significant other without knowing them? No. It just doesn't happen, right? You love someone because you know them. And beloved, in order for us to be able to experience, and, and we're coming to the, the solution, in order for us to be able to experience living a life like Christ, the first thing I would like to submit to you is that you first need to know Christ. Amen? You need to spend time thinking about his life. You need to be spending time thinking about how he lived his life from, from childhood to manhood. You need to start thinking about Christ's life and how he lived his life in various situations. Because the more and more time you spend contemplating the life of Christ, there is a principle in the book of Corinthians that says, what you behold, you will become changed. And so if it, is in the, if, if it is in your heart's desire to want to have a life that is of constant self-sacrifice, to, to, to wake up in the morning with a commitment to Christ each and every day, if it is your desire to live that type of life, you must first spend time thinking about the life of Christ. Because as you contemplate the life of Christ, your life will change too. And that's why I love devotions in the morning. That's why I love spending time with Jesus in the evening. Because the closer and closer I come to Christ, I don't see how perfect I am. The closer and closer I come to Christ, I start to recognize my default, my, my defects. I start to realize my sinfulness. I start to realize my selfishness. And I ask God, God, take those things from me. And that's what's going to happen when you come closer and closer to Christ. You're not going to see, oh, this beautiful, perfect person. You're going to see a wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked individual. But the beautiful thing is, the reason why Jesus wants you to come close to him is not so that he could just leave you where you are. Jesus wants you to come closer to him so that he can transform you and recreate you. Amen? And that's what he's going to do for each and every one of us. But we first need to come to Christ. And I know that there are some here, perhaps, that may be thinking to themselves, wow, that is so easier said, that is so much more easier said than done. Because, I, I don't know about you, I know for myself that, that sometimes when I hear that being preached, you know, the, the, the words, you can have victory over your sins, God can help you with your, with your weaknesses and your defects. You know, when, I, when I'm sitting in a sermon, it's like, amen, I want to do that. But when I start to live my life and I try that, I try to commit my life to Jesus and I, and I try to dedicate my life to him moment by moment, I see the struggle. And I see how difficult it could be. And I see that oftentimes my sins are like mountains before me. And sometimes it seems like an impossibility. Ellen White says, in Signs of the Times, August 26, 1897, she says this, Self is our greatest enemy. Self is our what? 
Notice she doesn't, not, she doesn't say the devil is your greatest enemy, that the demons are your greatest en- enemy. The greatest enemy that we face in this life is self. Self is our greatest enemy. And day by day, each must strive for the victory. Beloved, I believe that it is going to be tough. You are going to struggle. Because we are so tainted. We are so used to sinning. Our carnal nature is always fighting against us. But if God be for us, who can be against us? Amen? If Jesus takes the throne of our heart, you better believe that God can give you victory over your sins and your addictions. Amen? you got to believe it. That's where faith needs to be exercised. You need to believe that the same creative power that, God, that Jesus used to create the heavens and the earth is the same creative power that he's going to use in your life. That even though you may have darkness in your heart, God can, can speak forth light. And so, beloved, I hope that you, are, that, you, that you place your faith in Jesus because though self is our greatest enemy, Jesus is our greatest ally. I'm going to close with this last illustration. And uh, I shared this in, in, in church maybe a year or two ago. But I really believe it illustrates a good point. Um, there was a there was this zoo and uh, in this zoo I believe this was in Africa in this zoo uh, there was uh, there were these elephants. There were these what? There were these, these elephants. And uh, these elephants were, uh, you know, just, just eating and drinking and, and being an entertainment to anyone that would come by and, and, and come to watch them. And uh, even these elephants would, uh, would perform. They would, they would do all these wonderful things for their, for their, for their master, right? They would, uh, you know, I, I don't even know, stand up, whatever, roll around. These elephants always performed. And one day, there was, a, there was this moment where there was someone in the audience that had a question to one of the trainers. And the question was very simple. You see, as, this, as this, this one audience member, as he was looking at these elephants, he noticed something very unique. He noticed that these elephants were very obedient. But what was very interesting, he noticed as he looked at these elephants that on one of their legs, there was tied a pink string. There was tied a what? A pink string. And what was very interesting is even though these elephants were so huge, so vast, even though they were so strong, any time they would walk and that pink string would tug at them, they would stop. That pink string was tied to a stake. It was tied to the leg. And so the curious audience member was wondering, what what is this all about? Why is it that they are so... You know, they, they, they won't go past the string or they won't break the string just to move forward. And the trainer said something very interesting. The trainer said, we train these elephants right. And the way that we train these elephants are like this. When they were younger, we would put a small chain on their leg, strong enough to, to hold them, strong enough to hold them back if they were to try to advance forward. And so these baby elephants, you know, at, during their youth, when they would try to, try, try to leave that little chain would hold them back, would hold them back. They would, they would feel resistance. Then when they got older, uh, the trainer would replace that, that, that tiny chain with even a stronger chain. 
strong enough to hold the adult elephant. And so when the adult elephant would try to move forward, could not because there was a chain. But the thing is, because the elephants, their, mind were con- their minds were so conditioned in that way, the trainer, was, the trainer now is able to just put a pink string connected to a stake so that when the elephant tries to move forward and it feels just a slight tug, it comes to it in, in, in its mind. It recognizes that it won't be able to move forward. It won't be able to advance. Why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because I believe that the devil has conditioned our minds in the very similar way. That he binds you down with these chains. And he conditions your mind to the point that you may even be held by this pink string and you may think to yourself that you cannot advance in your Christian experience. You cannot move forward even with the slightest resistance. But beloved, I want you to recognize that as you read through the Bible, that is not the case. Because when you read through the Bible, God says that I want you to advance. When you read through the Bible, it promises victory. When you read through the Bible, it promises that there will come a time where those sins will not bind you down. Because I will help you break whatever string or even chain may be holding you down. Amen? The devil wants us to think that we can't do anything for God. But I want you to realize that God will help us. And I want you to realize that as long as we commit ourselves to him, as long as we spend time in his word, as long as we come to Jesus, self will die and our lives will be fruitful. Amen? That is what he wants of us. That is what he hopes of us. And that is what we can be as long as we exercise the faith in him. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.